We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is the Serum Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management, archaeology, and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 203 for December 2nd, 2020. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we talk about how archaeological information could be disseminated in the future. So go start that new archaeology blog because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. Welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today is Bill in California. Good afternoon. Steven in Calgary. Hello. Hi, everyone. So to start today's show, I know I mentioned in the introduction, we're going to talk about publications and the future of publications and stuff in CRM. But we just recorded a very interesting episode of the Archaeotech podcast that actually, as you're listening to this, came out on Thanksgiving Day 2020. So go look for that. Our guest was Dr. Justin Walsh, and he is a space archaeologist. He's also a classical archaeologist, among other things. But we talked all about space archaeology. He's got a project with Alice Gorman, who is the first space archaeologist and only other space archaeologist that I ever interviewed. And that was back in the SAAs in Waikiki a long time ago. It's actually my first remote interview, which is kind of cool. But they have teamed up, and they've got this project called the ISS Archaeology Project for the International Space Station. Just looking at different things in there, but that's not what I want to talk about. Because when people think of space archaeology, they think of things like the satellites and rovers and other stuff that we have on other planets. And uh, more importantly, like the moon landing site, because people traveling to these sites is getting to be more and more of a possibility as things like SpaceX, Virgin Galactic, and uh, what's Jeff Bezos' thing? Uh, The uh, Amazon's. I can't remember the name of it. Anyway, all these all these billionaires trying to get into space, right? Well, space tourism is going to be a thing probably probably before the end of 2030. We're going to see space tourists landing on the moon. Yeah, that's my prediction. And currently, space law, which isn't really a thing, it's just an agreement among nations that says you own the things. The nation owns the things that they put up into space, regardless of where they're at, but they don't own the land in which they're on. Currently, no one on this planet, as long as I guess you subscribe to these accords, I guess if you don't, you could just ignore it, but because uh, who's going to go to the moon and police you, right? But if you <laughs> if you get to the moon, you can't lay claim to the land that is currently the moon, right? Or any land on there, like a section or a plot of land. So while the United States technically quote unquote, owns all the 300 and some odd objects that were left by the Apollo 11 moon landing. And there's also the Apollo 17 moon landing and a couple others. While those things are currently, quote, owned by the U.S., the land in which they're on is not owned by the U.S. So you can't make the whole thing like some sort of, you know, World Heritage Site or, you know, Solar System Heritage Site or something like that, which doesn't exist. So you, you can't do that because the objects are the only thing that we own. Well, to take that a step further... Space enthusiasts, and I don't know if it's the current ones or if this was done a while. I think it was done in the last few years. So I don't exactly have the details on this. But our guest, Justin, said that the shippos for both New Mexico and California listed a lot of the things from the Apollo 11 and 17 moon landing sites 
on their state register of, I guess, historic places, but not really places because it's just the objects. They listed the objects on there. Reason being, they said those objects were manufactured in California and New Mexico. And so they're basically, quote, laying claim to them. And it was more of a symbolic gesture that they were calling them historic and putting them in their in their registers. But I'm like, okay, what if somebody wants to take this a step further, right? Because I've worked quite a bit in Nevada and like Northwestern Nevada, where we find a lot of obsidian. Well, a lot of the obsidian in Northwestern Nevada comes from what's currently California. <laughs> yeah, like, well, like what if, what if somebody decides to say, well, these artifacts originated in California, you know, the source material did anyway, whether or not the artifacts were actually made in California or just quarried there and brought to Nevada and then constructed there. I was like, couldn't you take that a step farther or am I really blowing this out of proportion? That's really what I wanted to get your guys' opinion on. What do you think about taking these objects from the moon and using the justification of they were made in California or they were made in New Mexico and putting them on a register? Could you not expand that out to even historic, if not prehistoric sites? I'm thinking, well, a couple things. First of all, you know, since I moved to California, I've become keenly aware that if you talk to anyone who grew up here, everything's from California. So that's not surprising at all that we would have sites on the moon that were created in California. If you think about all the commercials and all the movies and all of everything you know about the entire world, it all comes from California. So it seems to me like this is the kind of action that California would do. I mean... Looks like California beat Texas to it is all I have to say. But as far as the mechanics, I don't know. I don't really think this is a thing. Like, I don't know. Can uh, Arizona claim the asteroid that OSIRIS-REx just when surveyed because it was made at the University of Arizona? I mean, is this is this where we're at now as a, as a uh, country? We... Uh, We've ran out of things to make historic sites in California. So now we've got to go up to other planets and start claiming stuff that was put together. <laughs> yeah, right. A lot, of, a lot of satellites, too, were put together in California, to be honest. Heather? Well, I, I would say, you know, just to your point, when I was listening to you, that was my first initial gut reaction is, wait a minute. <laughs> if a resource, <laughs> if, we're, if we're registering a resource based on its origin, but yeah, yeah. that's... That's faulty. Now, in the spirit of doing it, I think they were just doing it because uh, I mean, it was I, symbolic. I, yeah, it's symbolic. And because, you know, a lot of what, you know, is up there, like you said, is manufactured in those states. My gut was exactly what you said. <laughs> but when you look at things from a legal perspective, the things that are registered and the location, as far as setting a precedence, I don't think that it's setting a dangerous precedence because we they did it once and therefore it can be extrapolated to everything else. Because, you know, our registries have some legal binding, but they're really but really not, not in that area. So I don't think it's mm -hmm. a problem. I do think it's faulty logic, but if it's just a <laughs> symbolic nature, I mean, I don't know what it really benefits i mean I, well other than it's cool symbolism <laughs> yeah. has a nasty habit of turning into law and regulation so you know yeah but it has just, to turn into a law or regulation it doesn't happen just sure. from one registry but if it, like you said maybe I, if it is ends up being a slippery soap then yeah we have a, a problem yeah. Stephen, you've got a comment on this. And just to point out, Canada, I didn't know this, is one of the five member nations that make up the International Space Station. I didn't even know Canada had a space program, but there you go. They have the Canada. Canadarm or whatever it's called. <laughs> what? 
<laughs> yeah, like they they make the, uh, the like uh, the grappler arm, the Waldo thing. Ah, gotcha. You know, California takes credit for everything. Canada takes credit for nothing except for hockey. So <laughs> nobody cares about California. <laughs> they, get, right. they get forgotten. Poor I mean, you, you think TV's made there, but it's actually made in Vancouver. So uh, I don't know. <laughs> Toronto. Sometimes yeah. Toronto. Yeah. It's, it's the same right, background yeah. actors every single time. If you watch. That's right. That's right. Yeah. My, my thought is uh, along those lines that California, what California thinks doesn't matter is that it, it doesn't matter because <laughs> they don't have jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. It, it, like they they can say anything they want, yep. but there is no process that would basically force someone to coordinate with California if something is going to happen to those those items and those items as federal property. That would be a different story, right? Like, I, I mean, I suppose that if California ha- has claimed it in, in a certain way that as part of the federal regulation 106 you know maybe then you have to go through the california shippo but Mm -hmm. like it's 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 federal property by law the the materials right um it's not it is not a state property so it would follow the process for any other federal property which which is you know basically like shipwrecks right like they, they belong to the the well, country of origin or registration or whatever is isn't that how that works? Yeah, there's a lot of law. Justin was saying that that kind of follows along those paths, but I would question whether or not the stuff on the moon is actually federal property. Federal money may have funded it, but NASA is a civilian agency funded by the federal government, but a civilian agency nonetheless. So well, it kind of enters murky territory. Well, we just yeah, yeah. There's still right. that, anytime you use federal money, you got a federal nexus. Yeah, that's true. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, and, you know, the one thing, though, I have to solve all of this is that it really doesn't matter as far as when it comes to California, because you can't get a freaking record search done inside of five months. So what difference does it make? Uh, I guess we're seeing that because your things are terrestrial instead of interstellar, interplanetary, then that's why you're not getting the record search. But also, I mean, it can it can definitely be a historic property as an object, though. Or a structure. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like shipwrecks and airplanes, they both are structures, right? Under mm-hmm. NHPA. So they don't have integrity of location. But if the materials, design, craftsmanship, and all the other stuff, right? And they're definitely connected to historic events since we haven't, I mean, going to the moon is still pretty historic at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, we could, that, that, we can definitely add them to the NHPA. I, in fact, I'm surprised they're not already on there. All the stuff that we left up there, I can't, I'm surprised they're not on there. But the the problem, the problem is that, you know, where, where the location of them at, that's what we're trying to go over here that, I mean, so let's say that we had a shipwreck that was part of some event that's actually in Canadian waters, right? Is that still an, a historic property for the United States, even though it's actually in Canadian waters? Or what if it was in, international waters right mm-hmm. well i think wow. that's in international waters then yes uh, although i mean there, there's clearly some some sort of thing about salvage right we, we need a yeah, maritime person on, find it. on board to to talk about this but i for if it's in another nation's waters i i think there are treaties that deal with that because uh, i think that we deal with that a lot in the great lakes right 
I think if it's uh, international waters, it's kind of a finder's keeper sort of thing, unless it's a military asset, then there might be some other. It is. If you think about, you know, Titanic, it's whoever found it. Yeah. So. Sure. Yep. Sure. And, and to be clear, California and Nevada didn't add these things. According to Justin, I haven't looked any of this up to verify it, but they didn't add it to the National Register of Historic Places. They added them to their state registers of historic mm-hmm. places. And, and and I appreciate the, the symbology of it uh, or the symbolism of it. I, you know, it's super cool. I'm a kind of a space that myself, you know, I like all that stuff. What I was trying to get at was it has a precedent been set for someone else to lay claim to something and use that as a precedent, mm-hmm. even though California, New Mexico never intended for that to happen. You never do. Right. And it's not like an enforceable law or anything like that. But could they come down and say, well, Precedent was set here by the shippo. I mean, maybe they would just say, "Okay, never mind. We'll take them off." <laughs> but you know, it, to, in order to fix it. But if precedent's being set for a construction location, then who knows? Yeah, I, well, okay. I'm thinking like, what would be affected by that? Truly, uh, curation of the artifacts. Um, I mean, there's no atmosphere on the moon, so if you land a spaceship right next to those those craft, all the features associated with it, so all the tire tracks. Sure. Mm-hmm. all the footprints and all that stuff, that's going to just get obliterated. So the goal would be to create kind of like an archaeological protection zone around that stuff. Mm-hmm. And so that's where the problem mm-hmm. kind of comes, right? Because we can't actually, we don't own the land. And you could certainly land a spacecraft right in the same Apollo landing location and not affect the actual Apollo landers or any of their, or right. I mean, the rovers and the other stuff that they left there, like that could all still be there. But all the features are absolutely fragile and they'll be gone. Mm-hmm. Right. Is that is that the issue that we're I think one thing if we were to just kind of take this model and look at it from a terrestrial worldly perspective, you know what if you are doing work in a national park, you're dealing with the national park. You have to have permits with the national park itself. So right. I don't know because of that, even though it's on a state registry, you have a site in the national park that's on a state registry. They still don't have that jurisdiction. The national park does. Mm -hmm. So I don't know Hmm. an idea, but it may be the same way. And one possible circumstance that I thought of where this could be applied to prehistoric resources is a company I worked for, I don't know, 10 years ago here in Nevada. Uh, We did a big survey and the company is based out of California so and they don't have any offices in Nevada, right? And they still don't, I don't think. But anyway, they were based out of California. We never even went to the home office ever. We never saw a step foot in office. We did, we were hired in Nevada, worked in Nevada, and then laid off in Nevada when the project was over. But we found a lot of obsidian. And they had a mandate in their, I guess, in their scope of work to do obsidian hydration uh, sourcing on, uh, or uh, hydra- obsidian hydration and then sourcing on all their materials. And a lot of the stuff was in the northwestern part of Nevada, again, was found to come from various parts of northeastern California. There's a lot of big obsidian sources over there. And even Oregon, right? There was some stuff from like southern Oregon. You get You start getting over to the more east side of Nevada, uh, and this is all kind of in the northern half, um, but you get over to the east side and there's there are some sources in Nevada, of course, but then there's other sources around. So one of the things that this company did was they not even thinking twice about it and not thinking they would keep them in California forever, but they shipped off a lot of these obsidian samples to their lab that they had hired out which happens to be based in California. And there were some tribal groups represented across the lands that we were, that we were working on because this, this project actually went all the way across the state. 
they didn't like that, right? Mm -hmm. They actually objected to us shipping stuff outside of the state of Nevada. And this precedent that's been set could have been argued to say, well, yeah, that's true for some of this, but this other stuff actually is from California. So, you know, could that, could that have been used as a way to get themselves out of trouble? I don't know. But, you know, with this, again, with this precedent being set by the state, who knows, maybe that could rear its ugly head at some time and uh, somebody could use it. Was the tribe's issue with having the material off the site or shipping it, the danger of shipping it, or actually it being in California rather than Nevada? I mean, I've run into this and other, right. other, other projects where they just, they don't even want it off the, off the site itself. Sure. Well, it had to come off the site because we we were collecting and they knew that. So it was definitely coming off the site and at least going to a hotel room within a hundred miles right. <laughs> of the site, wherever they were. And so that was definitely happening and they knew that was happening. And I think there was I think there was about 16, 17 tribes involved in this project, and they all had various voices along, you know, parts of the project. Sometimes they overlapped. In fact, a lot of times they overlapped. There were a lot of uh, contentious issues with this project, and I think the fact that things were sent to California was something that they just decided to make an issue, right? They just, it's just something that they brought up and said, we don't like this. We didn't agree to it. So it, so it came up, Um, you know, I don't, and it was, it was the fact that it just left the state, right. And it left the state without their permission. So yeah. Anyway, I don't know. Who knows? Uh, it's an interesting problem. I'm interested to hear other people's thoughts on this. We're going to not spend an entire episode on this and take our first break soon. <laughs> but if you have some some fun opinions about this topic, please leave a comment wherever you saw this episode or send us an email through the contact info on the page at www.arcpodnet forward slash podcast. Back in a minute with segment two. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30 percent off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code crmarc looking to expand your knowledge of x-rays and imaging in the archaeology field then check out an introduction to paleo radiography a short online course offering professional training for archaeologists and affiliated disciplines created by archaeologist radiographer and lecturer james elliott the content of this course is based upon his research and teaching experience in higher education it is approved by the chartered institute for archaeologists as four hours of training that's in the uk for those of you that don't know so don't miss out on this exciting opportunity for professional and personal development for more information on pricing and course structure, visit paleoimaging.com. That's P-A-L-E-O imaging.com. And look for the link in the show notes to this episode. All right. Welcome back to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 203. This is segment two, and we're going to get into our major topic for the day. I teach podcasting, and I always tell people, hey, get into the topic right away. Well, we spent 18 minutes not getting into the topic. That's not a very good example, but it was a really interesting question. So <laughs> I figured we would start with that. So we talked about space travel, which kind of seems like the future. I was thinking, because we have we have a whole list of episode ideas here that we try to go over, and at some point in the past, we wrote this down, and I thought now is a good time to talk about it. But what is the future of, and I say writing, but I really mean 
writing and publishing and really just dissemination of information in really CRM, right? CRM and archaeology. We always talk about gray literature. For those of you that don't know, gray literature is typically the name given to the CRM reports that we write called gray literature. I don't know where gray comes in. File cabinets, gray file cabinets, who knows? But the gray literature goes into a a file cabinet at a, you know, a state repository, a BLM office, a forest service office somewhere never to be seen again, right? That's typically the the concept behind that. And and the reason to that, not that it's locked away for never to be seen again for a reason, but often you just don't have access to it, right? And if you don't have access to it and you don't need to see it, you're not going to see it. And if you do have the ability to get access to it, it's usually for some very specific reason. Like you're doing research in the area, you're doing a literature search, you want to see the past reports and site records that were found in that area. So it's kind of a vicious circle, right? Archaeologists go do surveys and excavations, produce these reports to put into file cabinets for other archaeologists who are doing surveys and excavations to find those reports, read about them, so they can write their own report for other archaeologists to find. And it's just like, who else is seeing this stuff? And so occasionally, the gray literature makes it out into the real world when someone writes a paper or a grad student gets involved and, you know, collects a bunch of this research together and, and does some sort of work. But a lot of times grad student work too ends up in its own version of gray literature and never to be seen again. You know, a, a PhD filed on a massive library wall somewhere or, or even worse, digitally archived and never to be seen again. Now, maybe that grad student will go publish a book or something like that and it'll eventually make it out. But most of the stuff that we do simply just never sees the light of day. And one of the reasons I wanted to start this podcast, and it's never really played out this way, was to give people a voice to really talk about the things that we find and we do. And and we do talk about those things over the course of various topics, right? Our, Our own experiences come into play. And I think that's probably more than is happening to any archaeology in this country anywhere is, you know, we talk about the things we've done and seen and, and been on and, and it gets out into the public in an interesting way. So I just want to know what you guys think uh, about this issue and where we could be going in the future, because there's digital repositories like DINA, the Digital Index of North American Archaeology, that it's kind of working the way through from the southeast through the Midwest, where it's kind of bringing great literature and artifacts and features and things like that to light and giving varied levels of access to that information. Whereas if you have the ability and the credentials, you can see fine level detail about stuff all the way down to the report. If you don't, you just see vague general information, which I think is better than nothing. So anyway, I'm curious, Bill, you raised your hand first. What do you guys think about this stuff? Uh, Bill, you're teaching in a university, so you're you're shaping the young minds that are going to be doing this. Yeah, I got a lot to say about this one. <laughs> so, you know, uh, a couple of things. A lot of folks think that universities are the ones that are actually, in fact, shaping the way everyone thinks about it. But if you talk about productivity, I mean, I can't remember where I saw this. I'm trying to think. Oh, it was in Newman and Sanford's second edition of Practicing Archaeology. They had a footnote that was talking about the productivity of tenure track professors. And there was some survey that showed that most tenure track... No, we're not talking about just archaeology. We're talking about all the professors. There was a survey that I can't remember the exact specifications, but it was showing that a significant number, like 40% of tenure track professors hadn't published anything in the last two years or something like that. And that I think maybe five, I'll have to find the whole thing and let everyone connect to it. But like 5% of professors had done 10 
publications in the last two years or something like that. Hmm. And if you're doing cultural resources and you are a like a, a project manager or someone who's writing reports or something like that, you're creating a document that has to get past all the PhDs at the State Historic Preservation Office and probably has to get past one or two PhDs at your own company who have spent 20 years focusing just on the archaeology of, you know, California or the Great Basin or southeastern United States. They have seen a lot of different sites and they have read a lot of reports. And that's not going to leave your company until someone has actually looked at it, right? So if we're talking about peer review, you're, it's PhDs that are looking at tenure track professors' articles. It's also PhDs that are looking at cert, at some point, a PhD is going to look at your CRM report. And if you're a CRM or you're cranking out, you know, five would be a low number of survey reports that you're doing per year. So mm-hmm. you're, you're in the top 5% of what tenure track professors are doing, but the impact of your work on your own finances, on actually like what's going on in your state or your local area. I mean, especially when we're talking about these bigger projects, you are actually influencing the way archaeology is practiced in, you know, whatever part of the country you work directly by saying this is significant or not significant. You're literally, you know, controlling the fate of some kind of site or some kind of, you know, location, someone's heritage, just in real time. Now, I'm not saying that that's not happening from professors, but I would say that the thousands of CRM folks around the country that are doing this kind of work, like in real time, as this is unfolding, you're changing, you know, methods, you're changing what people think about uh, certain locations, culture, history, you know, the whole kit and caboodle. So the impact, I would say, is actually coming from the practices of those who are doing archaeology every day, 40 hours a week. I personally would say that it's the CRM folks that are influencing the way archaeology is practiced in the United States. Now, the biggest problem is the reason why we think that tenure track professors are are disproportionately influencing folks is because those things are getting published in peer-reviewed journals that a few hundred people are looking at and are thinking (laughs) of these ideas and getting, you know, information. Whereas I, I guess maybe like over 10 years, a dozen people might look at your survey report. I mean, most of the time people are just going to look at the abstract in the beginning. And in some places like California, where it still costs per page to paper copy off reports, a lot of times your company isn't even copying the entire report. So you're not even actually looking at it. And if you look at certain places, like if you had an archaeology site in downtown Reno or San Francisco or something like that, you're going to get a list of 180 archaeological reports. And you have, you know, 70 total hours to write up this entire project. You're probably not going to read 180 (laughs) reports. So that's why a lot of people think that the professors are disproportionately impacting because these journal articles. Now, my final piece about this is I'm one of the ones who spends their time, a lot of time, giving away what I think to the journals for essentially free. I mean, I don't even get to Mm -hmm. have a copy that I can give to my mom that you know, so that she can see that I'm, it wasn't a waste to raise me. Right. So (laughs) those things, I could spend all these hours writing this thing and for 300 or so people to look at it like in four or five years, or I could take that same thing and put it on my blog with pass it around to all of you have other group of PhDs read and look just like my eBooks. There's a bunch of skilled people who looked at every single one of those things before they went on the Kindle and get it out to 1700 people in about four hours. So if you if you really wanted to actually make an impact on the way people were thinking, you would have people from CRM 
take the things that are not disclosing sites, not disclosing sensitive cultural information, and start blogging that stuff on the internet. And thousands of people would see what's going on. I like that idea a lot. One of the obstacles I can think of just right off the top of my head is non-disclosure agreements that you have a lot of times with your clients that would preclude you from being able to do that sort of thing. I work on a lot of projects where I can't disclose. I'd love to. (laughs) There's a lot of pretty cool projects that, that we work on. I think that a lot of the issue that we have with, you know, literature and getting the information out there is from our, you know, just our dysfunctional family, archaeology, family history. And and that is where you have, you have academia versus CRM. And there's this wide chasm between the two. And that, you know, I think that both, obviously, both have a role, uh, just like you were saying, that, you know, the, the, the amount of papers that, that a university professor writes is so much less than, than CRM. When you said did you say five? I was thinking five in a year. I'm like, oh my, I'm lucky if I do five. Okay, I'm going to step away. I'm going to find it. I'll read it to you all, okay? Okay. <laughs> Keep going without me. I'll be back in like one minute. I was thinking yeah. five. I, I do probably do five in a month uh, or more. <laughs> I, I mean, seriously, right. more than that. And it depends. You know, if we have a large data recovery or whatever, you know, your time's dedicated but to that. But, you know, just the different perspective, you know, when it comes to university work, uh, it's a myopic perspective. You know, you're working on one thing, you can have professors that they specialize in one site, and even one aspect of one site their entire career. And that's good. It's, it's, you know, I use those kind of sources, because they're very useful when I'm trying to look at, you know, sites, and it is important to have Mm -hmm. that perspective. But CRM is, is highly overlooked. And you know, one of the things that I think could help would be number one, you know, where we have universities that are giving credence to CRM products and using those because it would be a perfect case study, a perfect practical study in how to implement regulatory, you know, regulatory law or, you know, compliance uh, in the business of archaeology. And then um, the other would be, you know, it's really hard to to be using and and taking advantage of uh, products when, you know, the CRIS system is four or five years behind. I mean, you write a paper, you don't turn it in right away because you're so busy. You turn it in a year later, and then by then it takes them another four or five years before they even put it in. So I've done something five years ago, and now somebody's just now, it's coming up in a record search. I think our record search needs to be the record search or the, the mechanism behind records are just need to be completely revamped. I think that would really help. I do like the blog idea. It's just limited as far as how much you can actually well, that's, publish. That's what I want to comment on because, and, and I have been, I, I've said this numerous times on this, but I have been fired from companies for writing blog posts about archeology. span yeah. But I think that's where the problem comes in is we have a blanket policy against discussing anything. What is it? We're like Fight Club, right? The first rule of archaeology is you don't talk about archaeology. And yet we're sitting here saying, how can we talk about archaeology? Because is it really a problem? If you were on some super fun site, Heather, down in Southern California and really contentious, all in the politics, in the news, the company's like, don't say anything. Or me working on a mine in Nevada, the mines always say, don't take pictures and don't tell anybody anything. But if I were to sit here and have a conversation on a radio show or 
hey, how about a podcast and say, listen, I was working in Nevada one time. We found this really cool thing here. Here's what we learned about the the society and the culture that, you know, uh, lived out there. Unless you're talking about some micro population of people that only lived in this one area, which I guess is possibility, then, you know, just leave out details and don't make us think. And, and I'm not telling you, but policy shouldn't make us think that, we don't have the ability to say anything, but we're so terrified of losing our jobs and we're so terrified right. of, quote, the client finding out that we just don't say anything. But if we wrote this stuff into our agreements where anything we might do, like I, I've had to I've done interviews before where some public affairs officer that works with whoever I'm interviewing wants to hear the episode first just to make sure nothing is said. We had to do that. Yeah. Ours, remember that I was on. I, I, mean, yeah, I, exactly. I think you're right. There are a lot of times where I um and awe. What's going through my mind is be careful what you say, Heather. <laughs> <laughs> and you cut that out because you're a good producer. But um, <laughs> I, there are times where I'm sitting here going, oh, Heather, you said a little bit too much there. Yeah, it, it's yeah. a shame. But, you know, just the, the legal ramifications definitely make us a little bit more leery. However... That's because we're so busy. If we really, like you said, were intentional about it and said, okay, I'm going to make a concerted effort to get this information out there and you dedicate some of your your time, free time, if you have it, to do that, mm -hmm. I definitely think it's doable. Just like you said, it is doable. It's just that, you know, most of us are always running around with like, you know, just trying to keep our chin above water with all the work that we have. <laughs> and doing something in such an organized manner takes a lot of work. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah, I actually have a lot of thoughts on this. <laughs> uh, for, first, as far as uh, Graylit accessibility goes, I, I want to give a shout out to Alberta. All the permit holding archaeologists can basically access all the, uh, the archived and approved uh, reports or Maybe not all, hmm. but most, probably 99% yeah. or whatever. There, there's a few uh, research things uh, where the reports are inaccessible. But in general, if it's a compliance-based project, the report was actually written, then you know, if I see the permit number, I can look it up and access that report. And then uh, along those lines, there, there's um, I was literally an hour ago looking at a uh, an article in Plains Anthropologist where the author's... Uh, who are a burden archaeologist actually use that gray lit for, for, as the data set for their article. Hmm. I, I think though, you know, I, I mean, like there in, in that case, those reports are accessible by archaeologists who are using it for, like in my case, I'm using it for work. Like, oh, there's a site in the area or there's sites nearby and I need to know about those sites. So I, you know, access those reports and pull up the data and, and, in a way, that's not great because that's just a data silo, right? Like accessing them as reports. Right. But I, I think I think that's something we need to really consider about what reports are because we've kind of touched on that a lot. And, you know, they, they are really about, you know, the undertakings, the projects, right? Like there, there's an undertaking here. We are going and assessing, is this particular project going to affect historic you know, historic properties. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, as such, we talk a lot about a project. And and then we, we talk about what we find and we describe what we are. We really don't do synthesis. It's it's really not, you know, it, it's in, in a lot of ways, with the exception of some mitigations, it is 
very much largely just descriptive. And, you know, and I, I can't help but wonder if like maybe the way forward off that is making our reports even more like technical reports. Like if you've ever seen like geotechnical boring reports, they are basically pages. Like, like <laughs> here's a schematic. And digitally uploading, you know, our, our data, and, and I realize it has a lot of difficulties in doing this in a uniform fashion, but uploading it to a repository, like in the same way that our reports all go to the Alberta government, and then we access them from there. And then the data is more easily accessible and manipulated than if they were just in PDF format. Right. I, I think that, you know, something along the lines of what Heather was talking about, I think it was Heather, that, you know, like getting the public involvement is is definitely, that should be one of the products, right? Like, you know, yeah. like generally our product is we, you know, go out, we do the work, we write a technical report that is intended for both our client and the regulator in that it's like, you know, and I always liken it to basically we're like really slow utility locators. You know, <laughs> oh, you you want to do a project here? Well, we'll go sweep it and then tell you if like, well, you can't dig here, but you can dig over there. Yeah. Um, sort of stuff. Like that's that's the right. um, the reality of our job. And right. then, yeah, uh, you know, like so having something that's actually part of the process that involves like public outreach, public like um, public reporting as, as mm-hmm. a separate product would be, you know, a, a great way to go. Um, yeah. That said, until that happens, publication is not our job. It is not our job to um, synthesize these things. It is not our job to you know write peer-reviewed articles. It is not our job to you know do poster sessions. Uh, a lot of us do it because you know we feel passionately about what we do. But really, the, the idea that that's like the ethical endpoint of what CRM does is is because we all came out of the academy in one form or another. And, and that's what's driven on professors, right? Like you have to publish or perish. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of us carry that like publishing guilt on into, into the private sector. And it's really <laughs> not our job. It's not our responsibility. H- having a report done, that's our responsibility. Right. Anyway, I'm okay. sorry to go off on that rant, but. <laughs> no, that's good because that gives us a good place to start in the next segment because I definitely have a couple things to say about that. We're going to start off with Bill, though, because he found the material he was looking for. We'll do that on the other side of this break. Back in a minute. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, welcome back to the final segment of episode 203 of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. And Bill, you were looking for some material you wanted to relay, so let's have it. Yeah, of course, the professors looking for their sources to make sure they don't. (laughs) (laughs) Heather saying, I got to watch what I say. I'm like, well, I have to justify what I say. All right. So I I was mentioning before this reading the footnotes in uh, Newman and Sanford's second edition, Practicing Archaeology. And so the book Mm -hmm. was published in 2010. And they they follow up. Actually, I originally read it in the first edition, but Mm -hmm. they followed up with more updated information. So 
The book came out in 2010, and they cite research reported in 1999 in the Chronicle of Higher Ed Almanac that showed that the average faculty yield for professional writings published, and professional writings include books, monographs, research journal articles, and for some fields, abstracts. So they said that 23 to 34% of faculty produced one or two items over the course of two years, and that only between 9 and 14% published 5 to 10 items in two years. And, and most, most Division I, like research institutions like the one that I work for, they're looking for uh, at least two articles per year for tenure-track folks, but just kind of there's just a kind of ethos, I guess, that you will do at least two articles a year. And it seems like it holds some weight. You know, everyone in my department is definitely publishing. So no one ever told me that was the natural rule, but it seems like it's a goal that most of us have kind of internalized. But that compares with professional archaeologists who are project managers that produce six to 10 peer-reviewed monographs each year. And senior personnel also produce around one written conference paper a year for submission and one regional research article every two years. So if every year you're making 10 peer-reviewed monographs, that's 20 monographs or reports per year. And I, that those numbers six to 10, that seems like back when I was a project manager, a project archaeologist with a master's, that's what I was doing. Like once I finished my master's, I had to write at least six reports a year. And so if you multiply that, that's... Yeah, I know that's higher yeah. than the that's the like higher than the benchmark for the tenure track folks, mm-hmm. right? Like that that totally blows it out of the water. But that compare that with an article that I did with uh, Catherine Draycott that was published in Sapiens. Now that was also peer reviewed. It, it was two you know assistant professors working together on this article, and of course you know it was the one uh, why whiteness is a why the whiteness of archaeology is a problem. Now, obviously, that was wrote that and submitted it before the race uprising. But then as soon as the race uprising, it rose to the top and got edited and produced. But just that one article on Sapiens has had over 30,500 views and has been shared 2,900 times. Hmm. That compares with uh, an article I wrote in uh, Historical Archaeology that the last time I looked, I wrote it and it was published in like 2017 or 2016 or something like that. And only 300 people had looked at it in two mm-hmm. years. So that's what I'm saying. Like the, the bandwidth and the reach, if you go this route of peer-reviewed publishing on the internet, it destroys any other form of publishing that archaeology has tried so far. Yeah. And, and along the lines of just getting information out there, Bill, some of the stuff you've talked about that I'm sure you've written about and you've talked about it on this podcast has been heard by tens of thousands of people. And in, in, in just the pure thought of getting information out to people so they can hear what we're talking about, I mean, the reach mm-hmm. is unbelievable when you start leaving the academic sphere. But I think to your point, Bill, and more to what Stephen was saying as well about how it's not our job to publish, right? I mean, it's our job to produce a report because that's what clients hire us to do. Clients don't hire us to do archaeology. They hire us to produce a report that says, yes, you can run your bulldozer over here, right? <laughs> that's what they hire us to do. And in the in the line of doing that, we have to do archaeology, we have to do research, and we have to do these things. And when that's done, the client is done paying for it. Bill, why are professors, why are they producing two articles a year? Why are they, uh, why is this required for tenure? Because, <laughs> because universities are for-profit institutions. And if they don't get the fact that they're doing stuff out there, 
then yeah, nobody's going to see it. It's a know, business. But, 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 you know, that is not how the business pitches itself as its own self, right? Like, I, I mean, I work for the government. I used to work for businesses that were the consultants of the government. Now I work for the actual government. The goal is not necessarily to get a whole boatload of information out there. It's to maintain the standards and the structure that was created for us to even have the university, right? Anyone can go out there and learn a whole bunch of stuff about archaeology for years and years and years. And if they're ethical and they're doing it for the right reasons and everything, many of the volunteers I've worked with, I would think that I would consider them actual archaeologists, but because they don't have a master's degree, they don't fit the requirements of the Secretary of the Interior standards. So college is designed for college to replicate its own self and mm-hmm. to bestow the gifts of education through this structure of controlled knowledge to those who follow the system. The system was set up hundreds of years ago, you know, long time. I don't Mm -hmm. know how anyone wants to measure it, right? Because it's not the same as the Greek and ancient African colleges or academies or whatever, you know, there were centers of learning. It's a much more structured system. So if you don't write in those structures and if you don't do what the people going back generations before giving away research for free, I mean, giving away your own knowledge and things that you discover about archaeology to these journals for free so that they can charge other people because they are actually businesses. So they're, you know, the article that I write is going to be paywalled, hidden behind a bunch of stuff, and they're going to force access. So they'll either extort universities to pay their their money, or they'll force other CRM companies to pay money, or we'll have to find some kind of backdoor, like go through someone who has a postdoc and download stuff because we can't afford to actually get access to the publisher, right? So like, mm-hmm. if I don't do that, then I won't be able to keep my job. It's, it's just set up for that, right? Just like just like Stephen was mentioning, if the person went out and did the project and then they came back writing an article on whiteness in archaeology, even though they did a CRM thing, they're probably going to get fired because they didn't determine whether bulldozers could go there or not. Right. I totally agree with, you know, what you're saying, Spill. It is, you know, the university is doing what it's doing to serve itself, but there is a point now where people are starting to question universities and the money that you know parents are paying to get a degree that could very likely not get their Johnny or Jill a job. And so, you know, I think that right now it's working, but eventually it's going to have to start, you know, universities are going to have to start to augment their approach because right now, yes, they're basically what they're doing is they're perpetuating their own eliteness. And that's not, you know, having this elite idea that, you know, we are the end all be all and completely ignoring the salvage archaeologists that are out there that are doing quite a bit more work and producing and contributing to the discipline considerably more is very short-sighted, especially when they're not, unlike you, they are not introducing that product to their students, which then make them employable when they go into the into the market. So, yeah, I think I think they need to start rethinking because I think the gig is up. People are starting to say, you know, <laughs> just because you just because you you know worked on one site your entire career and you're an expert in you know disc beads, then you know it's it you need to do more than that now. And there there's responsibility and um, an ethical responsibility to do more. Yeah, I'm, I want to go back to something. Bill said about he was talking about you know uh, giving away knowledge and and I, I think that kind of touches on another point that I always make about like CRM reports and and the way that you know we do 
you know, disseminate information. It, part of it I kind of touched on, it's like it involves, um, you know, all these developments and, and undertakings and, and there's private developers who are doing things and they don't necessarily want us talking about their project in the public sphere, right? Like they, they want to con- right. control that particular narrative and stuff like that. But at the same time, like the histories that yeah, we are talking about, the artifacts, the sites, um, stuff like that, are also, you know, there are other people who have stake in, you know, that knowledge, right? Like the, the mm-hmm. idea that like, oh, knowledge is for everybody. And, and you know, I'm going to go and I'm going to learn all these, you know, things and then just tell it, tell the world. And, and, and you know, like the people who are like the descendants of the, the occupants of these sites and and uh, interested parties, you know, First Nations groups and, and you know, Native American nations and, and like communities, they all have, you know, a stake in, you know, this knowledge and it's not necessarily ours to give away. Yeah. At least not in, in, a, in a random unstructured way, right? Like, you know, like me blogging about like, you know, the findings of my work is not necessarily cool. Right, right. So I do, I do. And in the last few minutes of this segment, I feel like we need to bring up some ideas for how to make all this better because we really kind of spent a segment and a half like laying out the problem, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. It's that there's too much gray literature and CRM's not doing enough to get it out there, or maybe is not mandated to do enough or doesn't feel the responsibility to do enough to get that information out there. And and so I want to know, are there some ways we can incentivize? Because in academia, you're incentivized by tenure, right? Your sheer existence at the university is based on publishing. Publisher parish is is a phrase for a reason. So is there a way that we could possibly incentivize CRM. And I was thinking just one structure that we have is, is RPA. And a lot of people who are um, master's degree or higher um, are RPA. I wouldn't say all of them by any means, but definitely a, a fair number that are out there in CRM doing uh, project management and PI type activities, typically the ones that would publish to begin with. Could RPA get away with making some sort of requirement? To maintain well, RPA that you publish or you do something, whether it's a blog post or something non-traditional. Well, I mean, you know, the the first thing going back to Stephen is exactly right. It is not our right to give away knowledge or anything like that under unstructured blog posts. So part of the improving of archaeology would be to talk to the real humans in the towns, in the communities where they live and see what kind of stuff they would actually like to know about and to work with them on that kind of knowledge production. And that be the thing that's the blog or the newspaper article, Mm -hmm. not, not our survey or not our, you know, evaluation of that house or something like that. If there's a chunk of that report we could use in our work on a local newspaper or something on, you know, Facebook or whatever, like, you know, those things, in conjunction with a community organization or a tribe or something like that. I mean, I think they, that's the kind of thing that would that people would be interested in because that's the biggest thing. Why didn't anyone read my article that I spent so much time writing for another journal? Because it wasn't very interesting at all. Why did people look at this thing? You know, I thought it was totally interesting. The 306 people who looked at it, they must have thought it was pretty interesting or their teacher forced them to read it or something. But like, it just wasn't engaging. We're not creating that kind of stuff in an engaging way. And I have a feeling if we worked with people in the community of where our sites are at, you know, they would just through their own, you know, system of telling other aunts and cousins and other people about what's going on, that they found this interesting information. And then finally, I would say, 
forget about writing this stuff in words, man. People are not really spending a lot of time. Most people spend their time doom scrolling. The mind is not necessarily designed anymore. We are training ourselves to no longer actually read words. And so we'll have to figure out some other kind of way to deliver the media. So, you know, changing our ethics of who we're working with and finding an ethical way to put out information in conjunction with other people that aren't archaeologists, like that's step one. And then find another way with some other kind of media, right? Mm -hmm. Bingo. (laughs) Ditto. I completely agree with what what you're saying. I actually have, you know, several projects where we have done, you know, historic structures reports or we've done historic projects and part of it, I just, you just end up falling in love with the site or you end up falling in love with a a building and um, you get invested. And, you know, we've had multiple projects or specifically that I've been involved with where, you know, I've written a history for a building and provided it to to the client who has, let's say, a restaurant or some a hotel or whatever, um, and so not only writing the report, but you know, selling it to. And, and I've done it pro bono, but I've also done it where the client's like, "I love that idea. Like, I'd really like to incorporate. You know, I know that there's a site here underneath. I'd like to, you know, really demonstrate that that." Yes, this is a new hotel. I'm just using an example. Yes, this is a new hotel, but it's on the site of a hotel that was, you know, one of the first hotels in the city or or whatnot. And so they, you know, provide credibility to their own product by tying it to its to the history of the area. And if archaeologists, which as a whole many times are not good business people, but <laughs> if archaeologists could kind of look at things from a different perspective and start selling products aside from just that report, you be, there's a lot of clients that are really would uh, love that idea. You know, we've done that. Uh, interpretive trails is another really good way to, to get those kinds of things out. Just like what uh, Bill was saying is that, you know, it's, it, it's hard to get people to read. You know, I've got two teenagers and they, they do not read. Um, they read when they have to. <laughs> I'm the same way. <laughs> but you have to put it in a palatable yeah. form in order to really get that information. Out, and that is our job. It's our ethical responsibility to share this information. If we just put all our reports out on TikTok, everyone would read them. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> With the dance. Chris, you got to do a dance. Interpretive dance on TikTok. Your oh reports. my gosh. Steven, TikTok, tell me seriously. what your interpretive dance is going to be. I know that's what you want to say. I'm totally going to toss my work boots in the air. And uh, when they land on my feet, I'm going to be wearing my safety vest. Um, that's right. <laughs> no, uh, uh, the, the, my, my one thought on the incentivizing uh publication in CRM is I think that's a horrible idea because <laughs> because we don't get to choose what we're looking at right that's true like I go out and I spend three summers doing doing survey and find all of two you know really you know disturbed you know can scatters what am I supposed to publish right like you, you write a blog post about how good your hike was well yeah I, I mean but, but you see what I'm getting at is that <laughs> yeah it, it, yeah. it is it will get if that becomes like a standard of you know being a professional, and you know like even worse like turns into like the status of what a good professional is, then it's going to mm-hmm. turn into you know like power structures that are high grading sites for their own purposes, and and it, and it feeds into the same monster too because I, I don't think that that's what we should be incentivizing. 
the, the same kind of papers that aren't getting read anyway. We need to look outside the box. Yeah. 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 And, and I mean, the long term, the long term goal, I, I think, and, and mm-hmm. to just tie up this entire episode can be summed up with what I was talking about, where we have, you know, like not data silos, but, you know, like we put data into um, servers, but we put those servers on the moon. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Wrap bookended perfectly right there. Space archaeology. <laughs> you know, I think I'll, I'll just say one last thing and we'll tie this up. I think this problem is going to be solved by the same way most problems end up getting solved, whether for good or for bad, is that as newer, younger people come into the field with fresher ideas and different ways of looking at things, really start taking a leadership role and a step towards those organizations and things that we all belong to and start making policy, then things will change. It might not be that soon, but I think that's what's going to happen. You know, I mean, that's just, that's just how things go. So, all right. Well, with that, I think everybody should go start their own blog post or podcast and, or blog or podcast and, you know, write about your last project, get fired, have that experience. And then, uh, <laughs> and then write about, about that. <laughs> yeah, then, then, then write, write, write that. a book about that. <laughs> there you go. Yeah then, yeah. then you write a book about that. And then the same people that fire you try to sue you because you use pictures of that project in that book. So yeah, I, I know a guy who did yeah. that. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody. And we will see you next time. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archpodnet.com slash podcast. Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or just email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Support the show and the network at archpodnet.com slash members. Get some swag and extra content while you're there. Send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network. Chris Webster and Tristan Thanks, everyone, for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we will see you in the field. Goodbye. Bye. Goodbye, all. Thanks for listening. Bye. I just can't do the Doug. I can't. I, I, I almost did the early Doug. Um, <laughs> so did I. But so we just don't. Just to say goodbye right away and, and you don't. If it's not Doug, it's not happening. Yeah. That's right. <laughs>This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.